This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This program is paid for by Jacob Media Partners. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Jacob Media or its guests and do not reflect the views of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program is pre-recorded. This is Women to Watch. I don't think you can truly change for the better in a lasting, meaningful way unless it is driven by self-acceptance. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Be inspired by women from across the globe. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. What I know to be true is that women were always meant to lead. And by shining a light on those doing it well today, my hope is that more women will find their own voice. Now, here's the owner, founder, and host of Women to Watch, Sue Rocco. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm so thrilled to be back this week after uh, taking a wonderful trip away with my family. Very much enjoyed um, the time off, but I'm always excited to be back sharing another story um, with a woman who this week, her story is incredibly inspirational, and I'm so excited to have her um, with me in just a moment will be Kate Curran. Kate is the founder of School of the World, and we're hoping that everything works out. She's joining us this week from Honduras, where she's doing some great work. Um, don't forget as well, at the end of the show, you'll hear from Sherry Marson, our Lifestyle Watch contributor. And Sherry's going to be with Debbie Harding. Debbie is the owner of Air Ventures Balloon Flights in Chester County. Um, so now I'm very excited and honored to welcome to the show Kate Curran, founder of School the World. Kate, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to see you again. Great to see you. We spoke such a long time ago, and and when you shared with me, um, you know, your journey, I thought, wow, what an incredible story, um, specifically because you made such a, a change in your life. And we're going to get into that, but I wanted to, I wanted to kind of open with um, 
Something that your parents said to you over and over when you were growing up that I think is some of the best advice I've ever heard. They said to you, do something that's not about you and stop complaining, (laughs) which is great advice for kids. But what, you know, those simple words, do something that's not about you. That's truly what you're doing today. Tell me a little bit about your mom and dad and how they influenced you to um, to do the service you're doing today? Well, um, I was one of six children. I was the fifth of six. My father was a public servant most of his life, um, beginning as a fighter pilot World War II and later a politician during the civil rights era and I think the last act of his life as a judge. Um, and my mother was the one that really made all of that possible. They both very, very much believed in public service. Um, It was definitely a more idealistic time, I think, um, then. But they raised all of us with values, very, very strong values. Do something, get involved. um, Don't just complain, do something. We all heard it over and over again, and really throughout our lives, every one of us has been um, deeply involved in different causes. And they, they would also say, it doesn't matter what it is, as long as it's not about you. Not about you. Yeah. Do you remember your first job? What was your very first job? My very first job, I think, was in a store, like a retail store. If not babysitting, of course. We all start with babysitting, right? My first we formal do. job. We do. At all, I was, yeah. I was 16. As soon as I was 16, I had a job. Yeah. Working in a store. Yeah. And tell me, when did you decide that you wanted to be an attorney? Oh, gosh. I was actually, my first career was in um, the nonprofit sector and fundraising. Okay. Uh, believe it or not, I, I, I knew I wanted to do mission oriented work. I wanted to do something with youth. This is when I was like 22. Um, and it was really funny because my, my oldest brother, who was much older than me, was a social worker at one point. And I was, when I was little, I remember my parents really didn't like that. So in my mind, like, oh no, you can't be a social worker. So what can I do? I can, I'm going to learn how to raise money. And at some point I realized I didn't want to just learn how to raise money. And I had a vision way back then. I was like 26, 27, that um, I wanted to start my own nonprofit someday. And that I needed to get some direct service experience. So I thought I'm going to go to law school and I'll do, uh, I'll go to work for um, legal aid doing juvenile rights work and get some, you know, real experience and then find a way to get some policy experience along the way and then start a nonprofit in my mind by the time I was 36. And I, I went to law school and I ended up on a very, very different path. You did. You did it. So you um, you became a vice president and um, an attorney. You were um, with GE. Tell me about those years. I mean, yeah. that's such a different part of your life than what you're doing today. What what was it that was beneficial yeah. that you've taken with you from that role uh, to the nonprofit? I. It was a great opportunity. I learned so much. Um, GE was, at least then, GE was the kind of place where if you um, are willing to work hard and you love to learn, you could 
literally keep expanding your portfolio or move from one thing to another. Um, I thought it would be a short term thing, like just just learning, making some money for once for a little while. And right. I just found it so intellectually challenging. And I would, you know, I started doing straightforward legal work, but also policy work, which is what I was really interested in. Um, and I saw opportunity. I kept seeing opportunities like, oh, now I want to do um, legislative affairs at the national level. Now I want to do it at the international level. Oh, now I want to do GE had banks and they had community reinvestment act responsibilities. No, I, now I want to learn that. Um, I kept seeing things. I kept creating my own job over and over and over again. Um, so I really loved that. I really loved it. I worked with incredibly smart people. You learned so much at GE at the time they were really huge on Six Sigma. I resisted it so much as a lawyer, but, um, in the end it turned out to be one of the best things I ever did. So you just had, you know, you get fantastic experience and I think it made a huge difference when I went to start school, the world, um, not just in terms of the learning and the training and the abilities, but also the network of people um, hmm. that I had built over almost 10 years. <coughs> yeah. Excuse me. We're, Kate, were you deliberate in your um, desire or goal to rise to a leadership role there? Was that something that, you know, you purposely did? Or, or did the work just lend itself to your advancement? I was deliberate more in what I wanted to learn, to be quite honest. It was more about... I want to learn this. I want to learn that. I want to do this. Um, I just kind of kept going. I knew I never wanted to be in the very, very senior ranks. Um, I never had, I knew I never had any plan to stay so long that I would end up in the top, like what they call the next level above me was what they would call senior executive band, which is like the top 600 people out of 300,000. I didn't have any, um, desire to get that that far. I knew I would move on at some point in time. But in terms of um, what I did there while I was there, it was really about just working really hard and um, taking advantage of every opportunity and offering value. You know, I, I really did find it was a place that if you offered value, they valued you. And, and how about the leadership, the women versus the men there at GE? Was it um, percentage-wise, were you one of few or were there lots of other women? Certainly in the legal operation, there were um, a lot of women. Um, and I would say at my level, which was executive band, about the top 10% of the company, I, I really did not find it being an issue. You know, if you were good at what you did, that's what mattered. I'm, I'm confident it was an issue at the next level up. I could mm. see that. Yeah. Um, GE was having a lot of issues with women at the time. There was a huge story on the front page of the New York Times business section one day that said the face of GE, and it was a picture of all the officers of the company, and there was not a single woman, mm. um, and there was one minority. It really caused quite a stir. So I, I can definitely, I could definitely see it at that level, but I didn't worry about it because I didn't, um, I didn't have a desire to go there. <laughs> yeah. But so you look back, and sometimes you don't even realize back at some of the things that happened. 
that today would never even be tolerated. You know? Yeah, no, I think it's important that we're see, you know, that we see the progress, right? We're, you know, opportunities for women to rise wherever they are is what it's all about. Um, in, in, so in 2007, this is a big part of your life story. Um, you left GE and, you know, it was a very tough time for you. You lost both parents and your brother in a very short period of time. So my first question around that, when that happened, was your decision to leave corporate and kind of go tra- do some traveling to figure out your next move, was did that come to you pretty quickly or was that over time, the decision? It was a little bit of time. I mean, I had started to feel, I, I guess I always looked at my, my job at GE as, as long as I'm getting more out of it than they are, I'm going to stay. As soon as they're getting more out of it than me, um, then it's time to move on. And I was starting to reach that level when my brother suddenly died. And then, you know, my mother got sick and then my father got sick. And like, at first I was just exhausted, you know, really just exhausted. But my parents were like classic greatest generation public servants. They contributed so much in life that I think we literally, my siblings and I were all overwhelmed by the response of the community and the public when they died. It was just so overwhelmingly obvious what great lives they had led. And it started to become very difficult to grieve um, people who had contributed so much and at the same time be in a, in a role where I was feeling like I was on the wrong side of every issue. I was in public policy, I was in the advocacy side, and I was feeling like I'm on the wrong side of every issue. And it started to mm-hmm. feel like climbing Mount Everest, just going to work every day. And so that was wow. really the impetus. I just reached that point where I just said, I just can't do this anymore. And, wow. um, you know, then I took a little break and I was trying to catch a breather. And all of a sudden I said, I, I just have to get out of here. I have to get out of here. You know, I have to leave the country. I can't start. I can't have another year. Like, like the last two years, I'm, I'm going to leave. So tell me, what made you decide to go to Argentina? Why there? Out of all the places in the world you could have gone what brought you there? Um, I chose, Ar- I'd always wanted to go to Argentina. I'd always really liked the people that I had met from Argentina, but I also, in my mind, I knew it was safe. I was traveling by myself. I'd never done that before. I knew it was safe to go as a woman. I knew it was cheap. Um, and in my mind, I thought, oh, I, <clears throat> I can afford to go for a month. Um, and then I can come back and figure it all out, what I'm going to do with my life. And a month turned into six weeks there to more than a year of um, traveling around the world on and off. And I actually didn't have a paycheck again for, I think it was four years <laughs> before I had any paycheck wow. again. Wow. Um, I still, and I still don't make, you know, I still don't make half of what I used to make back then. Oh, I'm I sure. Thought, oh, I, you know, so a big, big change. You learn that you can live with a lot less. Mm-hmm. Um, and you learn what really matters to you and what, I still love beautiful things, don't get me wrong, but um, it's just not the same. We have to go into a break, Kate. When we come back, I want to jump right in and and ask you, what did you do first? (laughs) What's the very first thing you did? Stay with us as we go into a break. You'll hear from our watch team if you're on 1210. And we'll be right back with Kate Curran. Now the women to watch. 
Finance Watch. Finance Watch. At Penn Community Bank, we're committed to giving you the tools and resources you need to succeed financially. As women, we're no stranger to managing it all. A household, children, a job, the list goes on and on. But when was the last time you took a close look at your personal finances or your income in comparison to your spending and debts? If you've been putting your budget on the back burner, now is the time to take control. It's important to note that having a budget is not a bad thing. It doesn't mean you're in dire straits or have bad spending habits. It means that you're committed to your financial health. It's simply a tool to look out for yourself. Whether it's in a worksheet or on your computer, a paper in your office, or a simple note in your phone, keep track of your monthly income and your expenses. From your monthly income, determine how much will go towards bills, everything from rent to cell phone. Next, estimate how much you expect to spend in living expenses. This is a broad category and ranges from groceries and gas to clothing and entertainment. With whatever is remaining, allocate that money to be deposited into a savings account. Remember, there is no amount too small to save. By having this information readily in front of you, you'll be able to determine where you can cut back and where you could even increase. Budgeting allows you to discover and decide what you value. To learn more, visit PennCommunityBank.com. Penn Community Bank, here we are and here we grow. Women to watch. Sports watch. Hey everybody, this is Dr. Jen Welker and you are listening to Sports Watch. It is a lot of pressure because, you know, as I say, um, it's starting to be trendy now to hear women say, oh, the first and not the last, right? But I've been living in the space of first for well over seven years now, right? Being the first woman to play in men's pro football, all that stuff. And what's challenging about that is the reason why it's so important to say first and not last is because you as the first do not want to be the reason why you are also simultaneously the last. We had a girl once, but dot, dot, dot. And this is why that door is firmly closed for all of those who might try and, you know, enter this place in this space thereafter. And that is a very scary and very tough position to be in. Right. And so that's why it is so important to be first and to be good so that there is a second, third and fourth. And so I always say that that there is pressure, but having played for a very long time on the Dallas Diamonds, which was my football team, um, I would look at it and just say, like, if they knew what we would become, they never would have put us under so much pressure because a diamond is a direct result of pressure. Follow me and all my adventures, or you could say misadventures, on Welter47 on Instagram or at jwelter47 on Twitter. This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch. I'm joined by Kate Curran. Uh, Kate is joining us from Honduras, so we're having a couple of issues, technical issues with the connection, but I think we're um, able to hear her responses, and I think it's going to be fine. Um, Again, Kate was a corporate attorney for GE. Um, She suffered a, um, a devastating loss of both mom and dad and her brother, 
within a very short period of time. And she just made a life change. Um, and Kate, you know, you were talking about your decision. Um, you were in Tanzania and you really felt like you could do something to make a difference for the children there that just weren't able to have the education that they deserved. So I, I just want to know, what did you do first? What was the very first step you took to actually bring School of the World to reality? Oh, the very first step I took was packing up my townhouse. I was living in a beautiful townhouse on the harbor in Connecticut. I packed it up and moved into the family home that I, we had, my siblings and I had inherited and um, moved in with a sister who had also left her job. The two of us were there. Um, and because I knew it would be that it was a big, you know, commitment at that point, of course. So, and then I basically looked up the law. How do I start this really quickly? Fortunately, I was a lawyer that, you know, it was really, really easy for me, um, mm -hmm. recruit a few friends to be, to be the officers that were required. And then <clears throat> what I did was I, I, um, organized a little neighborhood fundraiser, believe it or not. And my parents' neighborhood, really, it was like our beach neighborhood, contributed the money that, that funded our first school in Guatemala. I wrote to, wow. I had written to the um, CEO of a joint venture, of a GE um, joint venture there, who I knew. And he said, we'll help you get started. We'll fund your first few projects. And um, we think you should start in Guatemala and Honduras. And so that's what we did. I had this money also raised from the neighborhood and I went down and friend of a friend of a friend took me to meet the mayor of Chichi Castanango, which is rural Guatemala, about three hours from the capital. Um, big, very, very rural. And he started talking about their needs. We need schools. And I said, okay, great. How about you pay for half and we pay for half? And he said, great. And I said, okay, let's go. Let's go. Show me right now. Wow. It was wow. getting dark. They took me up. It was beautiful. It was amazing. They took me up this mountain and it was just amazing to see how these kids were learning. And it was like a, a shack, the dirt floor. There weren't even desks. Kids were sitting on tree stumps. The mothers wow. came running up the mountain dark to give me gifts, just to thank me for coming and thinking about helping their children. And that was wow. it. That's how we got started. Were you scared? Did, you know, was, is, is, all of the areas that you've been going into, are they safe? Was there any fear on your end for, oh my gosh, where am I? I don't know, you know, this culture. Or were you just absorbed with, you know, and excited, I should say, for building the schools? I was excited. I was not afraid at all. I, I should say I don't have a high trigger for fear. <laughs> you know, I'm not, um, I'm not one that is afraid easily of things like okay. this. Yeah. I'm going to jump to a quote, something that you said. You, I read, you said, a quality education can be the greatest asset a child living impoverished can use to create a better future for themselves. I wonder if you can share a success story about any of the kids that comes to mind. Yeah, I do have one in particular. Um, Wendy, when we were first starting to give scholarships for kids to, to continue past sixth grade, because our, our focus is primarily um, primary school, which goes through sixth grade. We, we went to find this one little girl and she was already gone. She, was, she had gotten on a bus with her friend and gone to Guatemala City. She was 12, 
12 years old. They had gone by themselves. She found work in, basically they called it a tortilla making shop. They gave her a cot to sleep on in the kitchen. And she worked 12 to 16 hours a day for $5 a day making tortillas. And was sending money home, somehow sending money home. So we went to see the parents and spoke with them and they agreed to let us bring her back um, and get her back in school. And so the scholarship was for seventh, eighth and ninth grade. And at that point I had lost track of her a little bit, but one day she showed up um, at our office door in Guatemala and she had by herself already enrolled, found a way to get started in high school, 10th grade. And she just said, I just need any help you can give me. I would appreciate it so much. And, you know, of course our team was like, Kate, I know we don't do this, but can we? And I said, no, it's not what we do, but of course we will. Cause she had shown yeah. so much initiative and um, right. I was just so proud of her. You know, her dreams got bigger with every year of education that she got. Yeah. Um, and she, she finished, she graduated this past year from high school, from 12th grade. And we just gave her a job. She's now working for us. She oh, is I love helping that. our, yeah, she's working for us and we're all so happy. Everybody loves her. The team is so grateful to have help in the office. She's helping like um, input data and things like that. Um, she would like to go to college and she's starting to save some money to be able to do that. And she's just an amazing story to me. And I think about, my goodness, what if we hadn't gone and brought her back? This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. You know, mm. what could have happened to her? Yeah. A 12-year-old girl by herself, sleeping in a kitchen. I mean, just, just incredible, really. Yeah. Well, she's going to have such tremendous insight for you, having... She is the, yeah. that child, right? And now she's working with you. Yeah. That's going to be so helpful. Oh, it'll be wonderful. That's one of the reasons, of course, that we hired her. Yeah. Um, Kate, tell me, let's talk about the numbers, what you've accomplished, um, specifically around the number of schools, the parents that you've also educated, right? So it's not just the children, it's the community. Where do things stand today? We have built 109 schools. We now work in Guatemala, Honduras, and Northern Panama. There's an extremely poor indigenous territory there. Uh, we, we have served, I think it's up to around almost 13,000 kids, 12,000 something. Um, we have trained more than 7,000 teachers. We have really worked extremely closely with the parents. We do parent trainings and empowerment. And um, it's about 7,500 parents that we have worked that that closely with. Um, I think it's around 600 classroom libraries that we have started. And we've Mm -hmm. actually expanded our programs now. So we recently launched an early childhood program to start earlier Mm -hmm. uh, so that kids are ready to learn when they arrive at school. 
and we have a you know formally expanded past primary school to include lower secondary school through not only scholarships but we are implementing what is called alternative alternative schools alternative learning models where people who had to go to work um, can continue their education or return to their education by going to school one day a week and um, studying independently and mm -hmm. in the meantime in between classes and I actually just in the last couple months have been able to go back and visit the two of those centers and I just was blown away by what I was seeing I mean it was just amazing mothers and fathers young mothers and fathers together and telling us about you know how all the kids are so happy because now we all do homework together it's a family the whole family has homework or the oh, mother's telling awesome. his other daughter like yeah it's awesome it's amazing and yeah i just am so um, moved by it it's yeah. a whole new what, area that i hadn't really anticipated one of the other things that you do i think is so smart and great is that u.s students get to go come i'll say come to you um for a week and help Tell yeah. me, what, what do they say to you about their experience in doing that? Um, they are blown away. That's actually, I'm in Honduras right now with a group of high school students from mm -hmm. the U.S. They, you know, and they, as a group, like every group raises enough money to fund, um, they're really blown away. It's, it's life-changing for them. They, they say, I'm so grateful for my education. Uh, I'll never complain about going to an all-girls school again. I um, can't believe how warm and grateful the, the people are. I can't believe how close the families are. I'm gonna go home and ask my dad if he wants to play soccer. <laughs> I can't believe how much I have, you know, just unbelievable impact, impact. And sometimes that I never even anticipated, you know, I can see kids who are so stressed out about what school they're gonna get, get into. And all of a sudden they realize like, I'm doing just perfectly fine. I'm gonna oh, be fine. Yeah no matter what yeah. happens. You know, they're seeing like heart-wrenching poverty. They have that same, that I talked about, that same like high feeling leaving the, leaving this experience. It's an incredibly positive experience. And oh, it's funny too. I'm just coming back to me, kids who are like, oh my God, I've never worked so hard in my life. Just making the <laughs> cement is really funny. It's so true when you see... Um you know, the struggles of other people that are severe compared to the things that we complain about. You know, it makes right. me think every every child should go and experience that. And they can do it right. If if they can't go abroad, there's plenty here in the U.S. as well. In the U.S., well, we work with these these kids before they even go on a trip. So we we give them seminars about the country um, and we also train them in fundraising. So we have them get up and do an elevator, um, an elevator speech, and they go out and they practice it. And it's actually really great for them. They feel like when they come that they have really made a difference. Like their parents didn't just write a check, you know, that they contributed right. and they made this possible. Um, the other thing, too, I should mention about this, though, is we do also uh, offer scholarships for kids who are really not in a position to raise that much money kids who are not from affluent backgrounds or come from low-income backgrounds. We actually used to take a group of boys when we had enough funding for that um, from Boston with a, a youth organization. And those kids 
directly to what you were just saying, would say things like, I thought I had problems. I don't. I, I really thought I had problems. I, my problems are nothing compared to this. Yeah. I mean, it was amazing. I walked to a whole group of boys just in tears, leaving these kids behind. Wow. Oh, wow. Really, I mean, it's such an impact. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's such a great program, but it's very intentionally designed so that every group really contributes something of real value. Um, they don't just come and show up and play soccer, you know. They really right. they really do something. Kate, can I ask you what when you look at the whole of what you've done since 2007, what brings you the greatest joy? What are you most proud of? You know, somebody it's such really interesting. Somebody asked me that question within the last six months and I was and they actually stumped me by it, to tell you the truth. I hadn't really I've never really thought about it that way. Um, but my answer was, and I think it still is, I was our team and how we performed during the pandemic. When it first happened, everyone in these countries, including nonprofits, including the biggest, were just, just furloughed all their staff for four months without pay. And I, I said, no way, we have so much work to do. Oh my gosh, we have so much to do. We, we're going to be the only thing these kids have. We're the only um, people here that are going to be in a position of trying to help these kids keep their education going, continue learning. And everyone really rose to the occasion. They worked so hard the entire time. They were so motivated to help the children. We had people like we created our own learning guides and our staff found out in, in these countries, there was like a lockdown, like a complete lockdown, but they found out how to get the materials to emergency workers who they convinced to go deliver the materials into the communities. You know, they did a radio program, parents, we did so much and we continued to. And the parents were so appreciative and so grateful for everything that we were doing. And um, this, this continued, we just kind of innovated over and over and over again, phone tutoring. We recruited university students to do phone tutoring to small groups. Right now we're sending, the schools have reopened completely in Panama and Honduras, not in Guatemala. In Guatemala, it's more like halftime. Uh, so we are sending, actually in all three countries, but um, tutors into the school to try to catch these kids up. So it's been a gargantuan effort by our team. And I'm really proud of that. I am really proud of how our team just stepped up. Like we didn't just hunker down when the pandemic hit. Well, listen, I'm gonna let you go. I'm so sorry for you know the technical issues, but I think we got it done. And oh, I'm gonna- sorry. Appreciate your patience with us here. Oh, no, I, I appreciate the persistence, especially from Allie. I'm going to let you get back to it, and um, I hope you'll stay in touch. I'd love to help. Thank you. It was a, it's always a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. We're going to go into another break, and when we come back, you'll be joined by Sherry Marson, our Lifestyle Watch contributor, and she will be with Debbie Harding. We'll be right back. Now, the women to watch. Marketing Watch. Let's talk about the great resignation. Hi there. My name is Diana Barnes, or DB, as most people call me, and I'm the Chief Brand Officer and Creative Director at Munchkin, the world's most loved baby lifestyle brand. Navigating your career during a global crisis is far from straightforward. Many of us, myself included, have taken stock of our lives, our jobs, and how we spend the time we have. 
We're always taking inventory of our decisions and making adjustments. But when monumental shifts occur, like a global pandemic, they can result in significant economic movements. Enter the Great Resignation. The Big Quit, as it's also known, isn't just an opportunity for workers to find more lucrative jobs that they can do from their living rooms. Instead, it's a chance for people to find careers in companies that fill their cups. At Munchkin, we strive to create a culture where monetary compensation is a slice of the pie, but not the whole thing. When employees feel good about their work, the causes their company supports, and the opportunities afforded to them, they tend to stick around. Workplace flexibility and compensation are motivation factors, but so are recognition, advancement, and education. Last year, Munchkin was named a great place to work certified company with 88% of our employees saying it's a great place to work. This accolade isn't a result of competitive salaries and flexible schedules alone. We strive to ensure that employees know they're valued, not just for the work they do, but for who they are. If you oversee a company struggling with employee retention, I urge you to tap into your brand's values and those of your team. In what ways can you bring more value to your employees' lives? How can you invest in them so they invest in you? Putting your employees at the forefront of your strategy will only benefit your company and improve the quality of talent you retain and attract. This program is paid for by Jacob Media Partners. Welcome to the lifestyle segment of Women to Watch. I'm Sherry Morrison. Today, we are going to elevate the spirit of adventure in everyone. I'm thrilled to introduce Debbie Harding, owner of Air Ventures and LTA pilot of Hot Air Balloons in Chester County, Pennsylvania. Welcome to the show, Debbie. Thank you. Good to see you again. It's good to see you. I was able to spend a little time with Debbie this week and learn a little bit about what she's done. Um, and I, when I was speaking with her before the show, I always ask a lot of questions. And one of the main questions is, what is one of your biggest accomplishments? And Deb was a little quiet for a minute. And she said she couldn't think of anything remarkable. So, <laughs> so I think that's hilarious. And, and you will too by the end of the show. So Let's just dig in, Debbie. Tell us a little bit about your background. All right. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> I, um, I started out uh, wanting to uh, be in um, uh, politics, I guess, maybe was the, the word to use. I wanted to ch change laws and uh, have an impact on the greater infrastructure of, the, of society. Um, you know how we all are as young people young people, we know everything. And then as you get older, you start to know nothing, right? <laughs> but anyway, um, so I, I uh, got a, uh, my degree from LaSalle in criminal justice and psychology and went on to, um, to get a, a MSS from uh, Bryn Mawr Graduate School of Social Work and Social Research, got involved with um, uh, social work and um, uh, probation, and juvenile probation, and and um, child abuse and neglect, and um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I I guess it was very it was a very frustrating experience because I think that um, you know it's um, we weren't really helping by taking children away from their families. Um, but 
and we still maybe don't know how to to handle that. Um, but uh, you know, it is an infrastructure education, all of that um, that will make a difference in the end. I think. Um, so anyway, <clears throat> I kind of lost my sense of humor and went on to um, look at um, other ways I could make impact on the, on the, uh, the world here. <laughs> well, that's an interesting route that you took. How do you go from social service to hot air ballooning? When did your interest in ballooning escalate? <laughs> well, yeah, so I, uh, when I was a child, um, I saw some books in my, uh, my parents' um, library, and one of them was about learning how to fly, and I thought, oh, that's cool, and I always thought they were my dad's books, um, so he was in the military and was, um, you know, worked on an aircraft carrier with, um, with airplanes and that kind of thing, but as it turns out, it was my mother's books, and she always wanted to learn how to to fly airplanes. And I'm like, hmm, so let's look into this. So I began um, through babysitting, getting money to pay for my uh, my fixed wing lessons, and um, you know, it was either time or money, that kind of thing. Um, and then later, after graduate school, I I met. Um, uh, a balloon pilot after a flight that I took with a girlfriend and um, we started talking about aviation in general and and uh, he basically said you don't want to learn how to fly airplanes that's boring that's going from point A to point B you know you don't need anybody to help you do that you can do that by yourself come out and crew for me and I'll teach you how to fly balloons wow. and I thought yeah alright well I'll try it <laughs> and it is a group sport. It's all about camaraderie and teams and teamwork and um, and fun, just flying for the fun of it. I mean, who needs a balloon ride, right? <laughs> oh. Well, it sounds it sounds like a lot of fun to me. Um, and everybody wants to go for a balloon ride. <laughs> um, I mentioned in the introduction that, that Debbie... Was, I'm sorry. And that was the, the transition from going from giving... Take, making painful situations for families to giving them lots of joy. So, yeah, absolutely. Quite a difference. Yeah. I mentioned in the introduction that Debbie has an LTA pilot license, which I never heard the term before. And she let me know that it means lighter than air. Uh, who doesn't want to have a lighter than air license? Sounds like a lot of fun. Um, she also said that ballooning is science and action. And after that conversation, I will have a totally different thought process as I watch hot air balloons soar across the sky. Debbie, you are a cloud blazer. Hot air ballooning is definitely not something you see a lot of women involved with. You have been doing this for over 30 years. Congratulations to you. And I love your entrepreneurial spirit and your, entre and your adventuresome spirit. Do you, do you know a lot of other women involved in this sport? Um. Yes, actually, I do. Um, there, there are, um, I, there are many women involved in the sport. However, as a as a group, I think ballooning is a little higher percentage of women aviators than the rest of the aviation world. Um, yeah, so uh, 
I, I, I think that, um, uh, again, it's all about camaraderie and flying for the fun of it. And um, got a lot of that from Amelia Earhart's um, books, um, Flying and, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I knew of a woman when I was younger by the name of Connie Wolf. I think you mentioned you knew of Connie. I don't know if you ever met her, but um, I think she contributed quite a bit to ballooning women in the world. And another woman you mentioned, Eleanor Volata, who is still alive. Is that correct? Yes. Um, Eleanor is 98 years young. Um, she and Connie Wolf were in the same generation of flying gas balloons in the 1950s. Um, and they, they both traveled to Europe and competed in um, international championships. And uh, she and Connie, and I guess there was one other woman before her, um, were, were the pioneers of women in ballooning. Uh, ballooning is like the baby of of aviation. So the first air voyage was uh, close to 230 years ago, and um, it was considered by Marie Antoinette as the uh, the um, chariot of the gods. Um, it was such a, a, a elite kind of opportunity for them, and. Um, Frank, uh, Benjamin Franklin got very enthusiastic about the prospects of ballooning and, uh, you know, people would ask him, why, why are you interested in ballooning? And it doesn't make sense. There's no reason for it. You can't steer, you know. Um, and he said, well, what good is a baby, a newborn baby? <laughs> you know? And he just saw that it was the beginning of aviation as a, a real thing. And and believe it or not, that first flight was from Philadelphia, uh, the Walsh, the Walnut Street Prison. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. A gentleman by the name of Blanchard um, was the uh, first person to fly in the United States and in America. How about that, Philadelphia? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I'm sorry that we're out of time, Debbie, but uh, wow. thank you so much. <laughs> it flew by. It flew by. by, literally. literally. <laughs> um, so thank you very much. Uh, next week, I look forward to another exciting and interesting guest. And um, we are going to be talking to a woman by the na name of Anaya Lockwood. Um, she has... Uh, made some music out of resonating sounds of water and her exhibit is just opening up at the philadelphia academy of natural science so i hope you'll enjoy it and um see you next week ladies keep living your dream now the women to watch military watch hi i'm carol eggert senior vice president of military affairs at comcast nbc universal and today, I want to recognize the United States Coast Guard, which will be celebrating its 232nd birthday this Thursday, August 4th. 
The Coast Guard is one of the most complex of branches of the U.S. Armed Forces. It was originally established at the request of Alexander Hamilton, who was at the time Secretary of Treasury. And the precursor of today's Coast Guard were cutters to act as revenue ships to enforce the tariffs of the new nation. In 1967, the Coast Guard was transferred to the Department of Transportation to monitor maritime transportation and other maritime safety missions. But everything changed after 9-11. In 2002, the Coast Guard was placed under the control of the newly formed Department of Homeland Security to contribute to the protection of the homeland by enforcing the nation's laws at sea and defending more than 100,000 miles of the nation's coastline. But what many people do not realize is that the Coast Guard can be placed under the Department of Defense during times of war. The Coast Guard is the only service that protects the United States in peacetime and wartime. Earlier this year, Admiral Linda Fagan became the 27th Coast Guard Commandant and the first woman to become a service chief. While addressing her vision for the future of the Coast Guard, Admiral Fagan said, Tomorrow looks different, and so shall we. This service's history exemplifies a spirit of innovation and adapting to the challenges that lie ahead, and its current leadership undoubtedly will continue that tradition. Let's wish a happy birthday to our Coast Guard men and women, past and present, and be thankful for their dedication to protecting us at home and abroad. Welcome back, everyone, and thanks so much for being with me for another week of Women to Watch. It was so great to have Kate Karen with me. Um, thank you for hanging in there with the technical difficulties. Um, it's, it's really amazing to be speaking to women in places like Honduras and all around the world. So I was thrilled to have her. And uh, thank you as always to our sponsors and corporate partners for helping us bring you the show each week. Next week, stay tuned for my interview with Jane Golden. Jane is the founder of Mural Arts Philadelphia. Um, have a great week, everyone. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is paid for by Jacob Media Partners. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Jacob Media or its guests and do not reflect the views of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program is pre-recorded. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.